0: It's time to turn to God's Word, and tonight's reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. You'll find it in your blue Bibles right at the beginning, (laughs) which is good. Okay, Um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that may he may, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're in a series on uh, the environment, and last week we thought about how God rewrites the narrative that we're told in the media. We, We thought about how God rewrites the narrative by wearing a crown of thorns, And uh, this really highlighted the difference in the biblical story where humanity is not a blight on the planet. Uh, Your existence is not a problem that needs to be solved. Rather, you are precious in God's sight. And we also saw that God rewrites uh, the story of climate crisis by, if I can remember, uh, pointing to a greater ultimate reality. Uh, the ultimate crisis facing us is not climate change as serious as it is. It's There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and people need to be saved. Um, that's what we were thinking about last week. But in the meantime, I've been reading this book, Time to Act. And this is written by Extinction Rebellion. Um, so maybe I've changed my mind in the last week over what we've been talking about. Actually, more specifically, this is written by... Christian Climate Action, which is a group of Christians within Extinction Rebellion. And uh, if I just read what's on the back cover, you might find it interesting. The climate crisis is the biggest issue facing humanity today. It's not only it is only together that we can make a difference. Uh, another uh, review of the book, a landmark book. It is nothing short of an invitation to join the holy uprising of people sweeping the globe who will not be silent in the face of the destruction of God's earth? It says, Now is the time to act. Don't let it pass you by. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Maybe the application from this evening's sermon is going to be we should all go and glue ourselves to the M25. Uh, we should all go and sit on the tube and stop the trains going past. Um, we'll see. The question for this evening is, should Christians be environmentalists? And uh, if we click on one more slide, we'll see a definition of what I mean by environmentalist and another. Uh, There's one dictionary definition of an environmentalist. A person who has an especially strong interest in or knowledge of the natural environment and who wants to preserve it and prevent damage to it. Should that be us? Should we, as God's people, be environmentalists? Uh, We're going to look at reasons for and reasons against from God's word. Um, But first, before I get into it, let me highlight two wrong responses that we as listeners might have to this question. The first wrong response would be, finally, We're talking about a topic that's actually relevant. We should do questions like this every week. Um, Now, I know know a question like this might be interesting to some of you, um, and it is good occasionally to talk about this, but if we did questions like this all the time, then we'd be letting the world set the agenda of what we talk about here on a Sunday. Uh, And we'd also get to choose the bits of the Bible that we want to talk about and leave the other bits out. So we don't do questions like this every week. Uh, We think that the the normal diet of the church should be going through books of the Bible um, chapter by chapter or section by section, because then God sets the agenda for what we're talking about. That's the the first wrong response to this question. The second wrong response to this question would be, oh, this is just hippie -er do-gooderism. Why don't we get back to talking about the gospel? Um, I say this is a wrong response because we are actually talking about the gospel this evening. We are talking about the gospel. The whole of the Bible leads to the cross, and then it leads from the cross into our lives and into every single issue that we face. Uh, We need to be applying the good news to how we think and live in this world. Otherwise, have we really recognized Christ as Lord. Okay, uh, preamble over. Let's get on with the question Should Christians be environmentalists? Let's start off, if we move on a slide, reasons against. I'm going to start off with two reasons why Christians might push back against environmentalism from God's word. And uh, as you can see up there, the first reason against is that people are the priority. Underpinning um, modern environmentalism is the idea of New Age pantheism. New Age pantheism. And this is the belief that God is not only everywhere, but in everything. And everything is part of God. Um, it's the belief that trees and bees and seas, they're all part of God. So in, the, in one of the uh, Hindu creation narratives, there is a God who creates the universe out of himself, and so the universe is part of him. And if this were true, if pantheism were true, then there would be no basis to say that human beings have any greater significance or value than anything else. If this is true, then you have no more worth than a rock or a tree, or an animal. But in Genesis 1, as uh, we've read already, there is a clear distinction between the creator and the creation. So God doesn't create out of himself, he creates out of nothing. There's a clear distinction between the creator and his creation. The biblical view of God is holy, holy, holy. He is separate in a complete category of himself. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Yes, he involves himself in his creation, but he is distinct from it. And as I said, where there's no distinction, people can't be the priority. But because there is this distinction... Within the Christian worldview, it's clear that humanity is the highlight of creation. People are the priority. We didn't read the whole of Genesis 1, but um, the first kind of uh, five and a half days, they're all framed in a kind of narrative form. It's a straightforward narrative. But um, when we get to the creation of people in verses 26 and especially 27, we switch from narrative to poetry. It's like song. Um, It's a kind of narrative way of highlighting that here something special is happening. And uh, even beyond style, um, we see in uh, the very words that humanity matters more even than the most impressive star or the most intricate of God's creatures. We see that we are made in the image of God. And as the image of the queen on a coin gives that coin worth and value, so God's image on us conveys on us a particular worth. We are particularly precious to our God. Uh, Just in case that isn't enough evidence for the priority of people, every other day we see God saying of his creation, and it was good. But uh, at the end of the sixth day, once uh, Adam and Eve are made, verse 31 of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The clearest example, though, of the priority of people and humanity being the highlight of creation is not in Genesis 1. It's in Jesus. It's in the incarnation, in him coming to earth. We've already talked about the clear distinction between creator and creation, but I mean, what happened in the incarnation when Jesus came to this earth? That, that barrier, that bridge was somehow crossed in a mysterious way that we will not understand. Um, God added humanity to himself. He took on real flesh and blood. In Jesus Christ, God joined with his creation There's a few lines from a Christmas song that I really enjoy. The artisan inside the paint, the architect inside the plan, the author climbed into the page, the playwright took the stage. God places so much worth on humanity that he would become one of us. He didn't become any other creature. He didn't become any other part of his creation. He became one Of us so that he could save us. All that to say, humanity is the highlight of creation. So, above the needs of nature, above caring for animals, our priority should be caring for people. Evangelism will always, therefore, be a higher priority than environmentalism. Souls that last forever need saving. And that should be our priority. And even thinking purely in the realm of social concern, we have a biblical mandate to prioritize caring for the poor over caring for the planet, because people are the priority. Yes, um, sometimes the way that we care for the poor is by caring for the planet, but we should never get those two things switched in what we think is most important. Um, most of the time, caring for the planet is going to benefit the poor. Um, we saw some statistics, some warnings from the UN last week which indicated that climate, cro- climate change would vastly disproportionately affect the most vulnerable in our world. However, there are times where that is not the case. Uh, wealthy European countries... We might have the luxury of pursuing renewable energy, uh, wind, solar power, but half of all people in the continent of Africa live in energy poverty. Um, For the poor in Africa to survive, they need the uh, most efficient energy sources, the most readily available energy sources that they can possibly get. Otherwise, their families will starve. Are we going to deny them that? Or closer to home, Um, people might protest about the building of a power plant. And there might be genuine environmental reasons why the power plant would be a bad thing. But we must also weigh the human benefits first. Will this power plant lift a community out of poverty? We have to give significant, most significant weight to those concerns wherever we see the worth of humans being put on a level with the rest of creation, we need to reject that. It's not biblical. It's based on a pantheistic view of the world rather than a Genesis 1 view of the world. People are the priority. And uh, one more reason why Christians might push back against environmentalism, put it on the screen. Um, the earth is temporary. In 2 Peter chapter 3, you don't need to turn to it, verses 10 to 13, we read the following. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Where righteousness dwells. So, people conclude if this earth is going to be destroyed, what is the point of environmentalism? Is it no better than giving the sinking Titanic a good lick of paint? Um, I'm actually going to say more about this point later because I don't think this is a valid reason for pushing against environmentalism, but we can't discard it, throw it away entirely. Now, I'm getting in trouble, so uh, I'm going to go on to reasons four. (laughs) Um, Here are some biblical reasons why Christians might choose to call themselves environmentalists. Um, There's a lot we could talk about here, but I want to focus our discussion on how the Bible presents the relationship between God's people and the physical world. And we're going to see three things here. Uh, three things that God's people are called to be. Firstly, we are stewards of Eden, stewards of Eden. We read in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now in the past, uh, and still today to be honest, verses like this have been used by Christians and by people who pay attention to the Bible for other reasons as grounds for exploiting the world. Um, They read the language of ruling and they read what follows about um, all the plants and animals being for humans and conclude that really we can take advantage of the physical world and we can do with it whatever we want. But that is blatantly not what we are supposed to conclude from Genesis 1 and from Genesis 2. Verse 28 is coming straight after the conversation about Adam and Eve being made in the image of God. The ruling and uh, what follows is a function of being made in God's image. We are like God in some way, and so we should rule like God in some way. The task that Adam and Eve are given here is to rule on God's behalf. In other words, to rule as God himself would rule over the earth. Uh, we further see this clarified in chapter two when we get to another perspective on the creation of uh, male and female. We see Adam given a job to do. And what is that job? He's put in a garden. He's put in a garden to work it, to cultivate it, to help it thrive. We see that here we are to steward, God's people are to steward Eden. Not take advantage of it, but be gardeners. Gardeners in God's image. Gardeners that seek the good of God's creation. Um, Another description of um, the relationship between God's people and the physical world is with Old Testament Israel and the promised land of Canaan. Uh, And this gives us a really good insight into that relationship. It's clear, especially through the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that Israel were tenants and God was the landlord. Let's put our next title up there. God's people are renters or tenants of the land. Um, In Deuteronomy 4, verse 40, again, don't turn to it. Uh, You can if you want to, but um, it'll take a while. We read, keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. God is the one who has given his people this land. God is clearly the one who owns it. And the, uh, the tenants are only there as long as they follow God's rules. Otherwise, they will be out. What sort of laws? What sort of rules did the landlord set for the tenants in the land? All sorts. But some of them were specifically about how they should treat the physical land itself. Um. And the creatures in it, indeed. So uh, they were given a law: don't muzzle an ox while it is treading the grain. So uh, if you've got a cow that is ploughing, um, you're not allowed to cover its mouth to stop it from eating some of the grain that you're seeking to harvest. Um, that would have been a short-term loss for the farmer, because I mean, the cow's the ox is going to eat some of the stuff that he wants, some of the grain. Well, actually, it would have been a long-term gain for the farmer because the ox doesn't starve and die. Uh, The Israelites were supposed to look after the animals that they were working with. There's also the law of Sabbath. And we're familiar with this in regards to people. But there was also supposed to be a Sabbath for the land itself. In Leviticus 2, verse 25... God's word says, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For people, a Sabbath was a day of rest, one day out of seven. For the land, it was a year of rest, one year out of seven. So, um, farmers' words plough and prune and cultivate all their fields for six years. And then God says, for the seventh year, you've just got to let it rewild. You've got to let the weeds grow. You've got to let the biodiversity recover. You've got to let the soil reoxygenate. You've got to let it be. It's a short-term loss again, isn't it? I mean, it's not a very productive year, that seventh year, is it? But long-term, so many benefits for um, their agriculture in the land. It's such a far cry from our world, this kind of sustainable agriculture. Um, We're actually experiencing a lot of the downfalls now of industrial farm processes. Um, Just to name one example, um, in the region of Punjab, India, in 1997, uh, it was praised for being the breadbasket of India. It was the real focal point of revolutionary technology in farming. Um, It was recognized for remarkable growth. Um, And yet, um, 25 years later, farming there is close to collapse. It takes three times the amount of chemical fertilizer To produce the same grain that it did 25 years ago. Um, 79% of the water sources in that region are now classified as overexploited or critical. Uh, it's, It's told that, it's said that in 15 years the whole area will be barren. Now maybe we don't have to go back to exactly the farming processes that were required of Old Testament Israel, but surely some of the sustainable, long-term focus makes sense. Uh, We are to be renters of the land. And the third reason for, well, why Christians might choose to call themselves environmentalists, we are heirs of the earth. Heirs of the earth. This is picking up what I said about the earth being temporary. Because when we look about the future of the physical world in the Bible, what we find is two seemingly contradictory futures. Um, On the one hand, we have destruction, and uh, 2 Peter 3 that I read earlier would be an example of that, um, the heavens and the earth being destroyed by fire. We've also got places where Jesus says things like heaven and earth will pass away. It seems like The Bible is saying this physical earth is a sinking Titanic. um, So why give it a fresh coat of paint? But there are also passages in God's word which seem to suggest that there is continuation between the physical world now and the physical world then. Um, So we actually read last week in Romans chapter 8 verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I thought it was going to be destroyed. So how can it also be brought into freedom and liberation? Uh, We also have verses like Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. And there we read that um, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Again, I thought it was going to be destroyed. That doesn't sound like a very good inheritance if it's not going to be here. Um, some people try to make sense of this seeming contradiction by picking one exam- one uh, side of the argument and try to explain away the other half. But what if both are true? What if this physical world is going to be destroyed and It's going to continue on in the new heavens and the new earth. What do we know about the future? We know about it from Jesus. We saw Jesus die and come back. What do we know about our future? We know that uh, this physical body will one day be no more, and yet we too, just like Christ, will be raised with a resurrection body. And what if the same is true of this physical earth? What if this physical earth also has a death awaiting it and then new life after? This very same earth. Now that changes the picture, doesn't it? If this earth, this earth is our inheritance, if this earth, though it is going to be destroyed, is going to continue on in the new heavens and the new earth, that might mean we treat it differently. Um, We treat things that are our inheritance with a particular care, don't we? So I think I might have said this before, but this ring, um, it's got two dates in it. It's got uh, my anniversary in it, because I might forget otherwise. And uh, it's also got another date, because this was the wedding ring of my great-great-grandfather. And uh, as a result... It's something I've inherited, so I keep it with a special care and I want to preserve it. Should we do the same for this earth? If Jesus died to provide us with this inheritance, how much more care should we have for it? How would it be if God had planned and given this new earth for his children, if he had sent his son to die so that we might have it, and then we treated it terribly. That doesn't sound right to me. So, let's um, let's draw these things together. Should therefore Christians be environmentalists? My conclusion is no. My conclusion is no, because when you say, I am this, and it ends in the word ist, you are defining yourself, and I am not defined by my opinions about the environment. That does not make me who I am as a person. There are far higher priorities, far more precious things about my identity than that. I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven by Christ. However, so, conclusion, no, I don't think we should call ourselves environmentalists. Let's flick all the way back to the definition that we had right at the start. A person who has an especially strong interest in or knowledge of the natural environment and he wants to preserve it and prevent damage to it. If we change that from a definition to a description, I think that should be true of every one of us as Christians. We shouldn't be defined by being environmentalists, but should we have an especially strong interest and knowledge in the natural environment that our Father has created and given to us? Yes, I think so. It glorifies God. Should we want to preserve it and prevent damage to it? Yes, I think that sounds like stewarding. Here's the conclusion no, Christians shouldn't be environmentalists. But yes, we, that description should fit us. Um, we should care for God's creation. And that doesn't have to get in the way with our number one priority environmental concern can actually be a means of evangelism. I just want to finish with this. How might that work? Well, um, the, the pastor of the church I used to work at, a uh, great guy called Martin, every single Thursday he was part of an environmental care group and they would go and um, uh, what would they do? I probably should have gone along with him at some point. Um <laughs> They'd uh, kind of like dig out kind of algae from pools and they'd clear out uh, fly tipping areas and they'd just care for the natural environment around the place where we lived. But the reason he did that was so that he could get alongside people and tell people about Jesus. He loved doing it, but his main priority was evangelism. We might do that in other ways. Um, You might be a dog walker evangelist. Uh, It's really important to care for your dog. It's part of God's creation. Um, So take it for a walk. Um, But maybe also keep evangelism as the number one priority. Dog walkers always seem to talk to one another. So why not use that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus? How about the way we treat our gardens? That might affect our witness, you know. Uh, and I'm particularly challenged by this because I'm not particularly good at this. But what does it say if one of God's children has a garden that is utterly neglected, that has burnt patches in it, that has been left into utter disrepair? Maybe that doesn't say uh, speak particularly well of us. However, if we do care for common spaces such as our, our front garden, then we get into conversations, as you do, about with your neighbours about what you're doing with the garden. And you can bring Jesus into that conversation. Yeah, I, I just love this gardening because I get to look after what God has given me. And I can't wait for the physical world that God has prepared for his children, where I can continue doing stuff like this. Environmentalism shouldn't define us, but neither does it have to get in the way of evangelism. We might actually reach people through caring for God's world. Let's pray. Father God, um, we thank you for the inheritance that you have prepared for us. Thank you that we are looking forward to a renewed physical world, Father, we pray that you would help us to care for what you have given us. Lord, please um, convict us, even now in our seats, of where we might be falling short of this. And Father, even more than that, we pray that you would help us to keep our right priorities here. Lord, please show us opportunities where we can reach people for Jesus and maybe even while we're looking after your world, uh, that we would be able to do that. Please give us opportunities, even this week, along with the boldness to take them, and the fruits that only you can bring from that. In Jesus' name, amen.